Turn, if you will, to the 18th chapter of Luke. And this morning, in just a few moments, I'm going to start reading with the first verse. We read through verse 8 in Luke chapter 18. A teenage boy once had a special date with his girlfriend one evening. They were going to have dinner at her home where he would meet her parents for the first time. And then they were going to go out to a movie afterward. He decided the evening called for something special, so he went to the drugstore to buy some candy. Some rather expensive candy was kept behind the counter, so the boy told the pharmacist he needed a box. The pharmacist explained that the candy came in small, medium, and large-sized boxes, and without hesitation, the boy said he would take a box of each. Well, this prompted a question from the pharmacist, So the boy explained he felt like this was going to be his lucky night. He wanted to be prepared. If the young lady let him hold her hand, she was going to get that small box of candy. And if she let him put his arms around her, then she would get that medium-sized box of candy. And then he so boldly explained to the pharmacist, and if she lets me kiss her on the lips... She's going to get that large box of candy. Well, at the girls' home that evening, the the family gathered around the table for the meal, and very quickly the young man said he would like to ask the blessing. And so with heads bowed around the table, he began his prayer, and he prayed long and hard. He prayed for his friends at school. He prayed for his teachers. He prayed for each member of the family gathered there, naming them by name, He prayed for world conditions, he prayed for the food, and finally he concluded with a long address on the power of answered prayer. And after such an unusually long blessing, the girl leaned over to her boyfriend and she said, I had no idea you were so religious. And when he had the opportunity, he leaned back over to her and said, I had no idea your daddy was a pharmacist. Jesus was a master teacher, and he used many different teaching styles to teach us about God and about the kingdom of heaven. He quoted scripture. He used parables, sometimes referred to as earthly stories with heavenly meanings. He used illustrations and analogies. He used humor, which we'll see a little bit later. He also used paradox a statement that appears to contradict itself, and yet it teaches a valuable lesson. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. He who would be made great must lower himself, and yet he who lowers himself will be lifted up. Another way that Jesus taught was by showing contrasts, and that's what we find in our scripture lesson for today. The subtitle of my message today is A Lesson in Contrasts. Stand, if you will, and let's read that first, those first eight verses of Luke chapter 18. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, 
Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would enlighten us to these words from your word today, Father. It sounds like a very simple story, and yet there is so much there, so much truth, so much there to cause us to think about our relationship with you. And so we pray that you would enlighten us now with the Spirit so that we might hear your will and your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and be seated. To be able to understand the parable, we first need to understand the setting in which it is presented. The justice system in first century Middle Eastern setting was far different from our judicial system today. First of all, there wasn't even a courtroom. The court would have been simply a portable tent and a tent even without sides, just something like a canopy that was moved around from location to location. It was set up in the busiest part of the community, usually close to the market, and the setting was noisy, it was crowded, there were people passing by. The judge was not even an elected official and wasn't even appointed according to some sense of civic duty. It had little to do with wanting to see justice served. It was just another business. Anyone with enough money, and enough contacts could buy a judgeship over a certain area and begin handing down decisions that would affect people's lives. That judge would then rule in that area until someone came along and offered him enough money to move on to a more prestigious position somewhere else. Judgeships were bought and sold all the time, just like business franchises. When the tent was brought to an area, the judge sat on an elevated bench inside the tent or under that canopy where he could be seen and was surrounded by his assistants. And these assistants would then fan out to the outer perimeter of that canopy where people were passing by. They weren't schedules or dockets the way we think of them today. Anyone who had a grievance with someone else would first have to go through one of those assistants. You would explain your case, and if the assistant thought that it was worthy of being heard by the judge, and if you gave them enough money that they instantly pocketed, then they would present you to the judge, who would then ask for even more money before hearing your case. The widow in the story that Jesus told would have had several strikes against her from the very beginning, and the disciples would have understood that. There would not have been any need for explanation. First of all, she was a woman. And in this culture, women had little standing before the law. Women did not go to court. Since she was a widow, she would have had no husband to go to court for her to look after legal affairs. 
There may have been a property or a land dispute. It could have been that uh, her late husband uh, either owed someone some money or someone owed him some money and she was trying to collect it. It was clear that there was no kinsman redeemer. Now, kinsman redeemer was a, a very uh, common term in the Old Testament. We see it in the book of Ruth. Boaz was a kinsman redeemer for Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi. A kinsman redeemer would have been uh, an uncle, a brother, a close relative, or a good friend of the deceased person who would then step in to look after the widow and the family uh, and to represent them in legal affairs, to make sure that they were treated fairly, to make sure that they were not taken advantage of in any way. And since she was appearing before the judge herself, she had no kinsman redeemer to represent her. It's also more than implied that she was poor. She had no money to pay that assistant first, much less the judge even later, because of the fact that she kept coming back, repeating her pleas. The wording that we have in verses 5 and 7 make it clear that it really wasn't a matter of this widow disagreeing with the judge's ruling. She wasn't appealing anything. There hadn't been a ruling. She wanted to be heard, and she was being refused. And so let's look today at the contrasts that Jesus was teaching in this story. First of all, there's that contrast between, between prayer and fasting. In that first verse, some of your translations will say, do not give up. Some say, pray without fainting. It means to lose heart, to lose all your energy, to get so discouraged that you just feel like you're about to fall. And the contrast Jesus says to that is to always pray. We have passages in 1 Thessalonians and in Ephesians and Philippians that all give us essentially the same wording, pray without ceasing, always pray. And so what does it mean? Does it mean that we are to be constantly going around repeating prayers over and over and over again? Jesus in Matthew 6 warned against vain repetition and coming across being seen as a hypocrite. Does it mean that we are to pray loudly and strongly enough and over uh, everybody else in order to be heard and answered? Don't look at it now, but in the next six verses after our story here this morning, Jesus teaches another parable that warns against that. Does it mean that the volume or the amount of our prayers is going to make a difference? Maybe getting enough people to pray for us. If that was the case, then it would be a simple matter of the, whoever gets the most people signed up to pray for their cause, then their wish is going to be granted. So if that's the case, then what's the magic number? How many people do we need to be praying for us to get what we want? And also, if that's the case, it has absolutely nothing to do with us approaching the throne of grace. I believe that what Jesus meant was that we are to live in an attitude of prayer. Something that we do regularly to the point that it is just a natural part of who we are. It becomes second nature to us. It is just as natural as breathing. I came across a very, very interesting point recently that I'd like to share with you. The name of God, as it appears 
in many places in the early Old Testament. In the early manuscripts, we interpret something like the capital letters Y-H-W-H, Y-H-W-H, in all caps. And in time, the English influence added the vowels of A and E so that it comes out as Y-A-H-W-E-H. We pronounce it something like Yahweh. In many languages, and especially in languages used in the ancient Middle East, there were throaty and, and guttural kinds of sounds that are unmatched in English. We don't even have the kinds of sounds in our English pronunciation that they do. And it has been suggested that in its original form, that name for God, Yahweh, or Y-H-W-H, that the first two letters, the Y-H, would have been more of a very quick, sharp inhale of breath against the back of the throat, something like And then the second half, the WH, would have been a sharp, pronounced exhale, almost something like a very light cough. And so the, the thought is, could it be that a newborn's first breath, breathing in, breathing out was an expression to God. Could it be that in the same way when we gasp or when we sigh, when emotion is just too great for words, that we're saying the name of holy God. In sadness, we breathe heavy sighs. Sometimes our hearts are so filled with joy we feel like they're going to burst. Sometimes in fear, we hold our breath. And so someone has to say, take a breath, breathe now, in and out, brush, relax. When we're about to do something we've never done before, we hold our breath. In an atheist's last breath on this earth, in and out, could it be that they are saying the very name of God? In all experiences of life, in every moment, even as we sit calmly here this morning and just simply breathe in and out, God is giving us the opportunity to say his name. Now, I'm still researching that one, but it's very, very intriguing to me. And at the very least, my point for us is that our prayer should be just as natural as breathing. Long before COVID, the words pandemic, became a natural part of our, of our vocabularies. Certain times of the year when pollen count was high or we were exposed to dust or we get an infection, our breathing becomes congested, it becomes hard, and something that should be natural and free and easy becomes labored and hard and a struggle for us. And in the very same way, when sin comes into our lives and infects us and congests us and prevents us from knowing and communing with God the way that we should, our lives become heavy and labored and trials come and we lose heart 
and we become discouraged and we want to give up just like those words in that first verse. Well, that's just my illustration. But let me give you one from Scripture that follows this same line of thought. In the latter part of, ver of chapter 17 in Luke, Jesus talks about his second coming. And then in chapter 18, verse 1, where we started this morning, he talks about prayer. Now, first of all, you understand those chapter divisions are something we came up with. In all likelihood, there was no disconnect between 17 and 18. It was all part of the same conversation. And so in the latter part of 17, we have Jesus talking about his second coming. And then chapter 18, verse 1, he talks about prayer. And then a few verses later, he talks about the second coming again. And then a few verses later, he talks about prayer again. And those thoughts are interwoven with each other. So on one hand, you have the discussion about prayer. And on the other hand, you have those multiple discussions about the second coming. And together, they form the underlying theme of our passage this morning and of my message this morning. In the latter part of verse 17, he's talking about his second coming. And the disciples ask him, where? Where will it take place? And then we get to chapter of uh, the last verse of chapter 17. And Jesus says, where there is a dead body... There the vultures will gather. Jesus was talking about spiritual sickness and death. Where there's a rotting corpse, there's going to be a stench. There's breathing that contaminated air is going to do our, our bodily systems harm. It's going to hurt us. But then Jesus talks about prayer. And in 18, verse 1, he says, don't faint, don't give up, keep praying. Another way to say it is this, let the pure air of prayer sustain you. Live in an atmosphere of prayer. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says this, Paul said, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to give you another translation of that. And this one is a paraphrase. And so that means it's not necessarily going to follow the closest thoughts of the original text. It's going to be a little bit more conversational, a little bit more colloquial. But hear this version of it and remember the essence of these words are be, being written by the Apostle Paul sitting in a cold, dark, damp prison cell and his execution is imminent. Don't worry. Don't fret. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worry into prayer. And before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness and goodness. Everything coming together for your good will come and settle you down. There's another contrast that Jesus refers to, and that's the contrast of persistent prayer versus giving up. He said, always pray. 
And in the parable, in the story that he told, that widow kept coming back again and again and again to the judge. Many effective prayers in the Bible were prayed consistently. In Psalm 55, David said this, I call to God and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Also in the Old Testament, we have the story of, of Daniel and his friends, friends praying consistently. In the Old Testament, Hannah prayed for years for a son. And finally, after years of prayer, God answered and gave her a son the prophet Samuel. Jesus prayed persistently in the garden the night that he was betrayed. He prayed, not my will, but thine. Once, twice, three times. And God heard that prayer and God answered that prayer and God gave him in his humanity the strength and the resolve he needed to face the cross. We need to pray persistently. Let me give you another example of persistence. Emmett Smith retired from professional football in 2004 after breaking at that time the old record for rushing yardage in the NFL. Smith wasn't as flashy as a lot of other players, but he was consistent. Emmett Smith ran for 18,355 yards that's the equivalent of just under 10 and a half miles now distance runners run more than that in a single race 26 miles in a marathon and so what and it took Emmett Smith 15 years so what's the big deal well the big deal was he had these 11 big defensive linemen trying to tear his head off his average for those 10.4 miles per run was four yards at a time. Four yards. He was tackled and thrown to the ground 4,409 times. And you know what? Every time he got back up. Even the best of people are going to get knocked down in life. But what sets them apart from the quitters is when they get back up again. Life is full of adversarial people who will tackle you. And there are going to be times in your life that you are going to face circumstances that will seem to trip your legs out from under you. The widow in the parable figuratively was knocked down over and over and over again. But what? She got up and she came back that judge time and time again. There's a quote that I like. I don't know where I saw it, but uh, maybe on a plaque somewhere. Success is getting up one more time than you have fallen. One of the greatest men of faith in Christian history was the English preacher George Mueller. He was a man of strong prayer. George Mueller wrote these words. The great point is to never give up until the answer comes. I have been praying for 63 years and eight months for one man's conversion. He is not saved yet, but he will be. Why? How can it be otherwise? I am praying. That's a strong prayer. George Mueller died 
and the man had still not come to know Jesus. But as Mueller's casket was being lowered into the ground, the man repented and became a believer through the power of the Holy Spirit and because of persistent prayer. What that means for us today. Use the push approach. You've heard that before. Use the push approach to prayer. P-U-S-H. Pray until something happens. There's another contrast that Jesus makes, and that's the contrast between the widow and with God's chosen people. Jesus was not saying we're like the widow in the story. He was saying we're not like the widow in the story. She was a stranger to the judge. We are God's children. She was reaching out to the judge. God reached out to us through his son Jesus. She had no access to the judge. We have open and free access to God and can come to him at any time. He's only a breath of a prayer away. We don't even need to say the words. She had no friend to help her, no kinsman redeemer. We have the redeemer of the world. She had no one to plead her case. We have a savior who, according to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, is our advocate. Hebrews 2.17 says we have a high priest who represents us before the Father. Romans 8 says we have a Holy Spirit that intercedes on our behalf. The widow had no promise she would ever be heard. She just came repeatedly and cried out time after time after time. We have the very promise of God that he hears and he will answer when we come to him in faith, believing. She came every day to a court of law with many flaws. We come to a throne of grace, which at its very essence is perfection. She made her pleas in poverty, and we have the riches of heaven available to meet our every need, not just monetarily. Sadly enough, it is when we fail to pray. It is when we fail to utilize the power that God has given us that we then become like that widow in the story. We have one more contrast, and that is with the judge and the father. If you fail to realize that Jesus is talking about contrast, you miss the point of the story. On the surface, at first glance, it appears as if Jesus is just saying that if we pray long enough, if we pray hard enough, we just might eventually wear God down and he'll eventually give us what we want. That is not what Jesus is saying. God is not like the judge in the story. Verses 6 and 7 again. Jesus said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will God not give us justice? See the contrast. We don't have to come with bribes and make deals to get God's attention. We don't have to wear him down until he gives in to us. He is our loving God. 
He loves us. He cares for us. He wants nothing but the very best for us. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares upon him for God cares for you. Here's your homework for today and it just might be the simplest one you're ever going to get. Write down four simple words. God cares for me. Write that down, put it on a sticky note or put it somewhere where you will see it and see it often. Claim that truth. God cares for me. John 9.31 says he listens to the godly people who do his will. 1 Peter 3.12 says the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. I said at the beginning today, that Jesus used several different techniques in his preaching. There's another technique that he used as well, and that was humor. We don't get it because of the language barrier, but at the point in verse 5 in the story, another translation has the judge saying, I will see that she gets justice so she won't eventually wear me out. You don't have to answer this, but parents, did you ever say to your children, do something before I... Yeah. It was at that point that I have to think the disciples broke out in laughter. We still don't get it, so let me help you. An early translation has the judge saying, I'll give her justice before she comes and gives me a black eye. The most literal translation of the Aramaic dialect of Hebrew that Jesus spoke has the judge saying, I'm going to do what she wants before she comes and beats me up. And that's why the NIV says before she comes and attacks me. Think of it this way. There is every reason to think that the judge in the story, all the characters in the story, were Jewish. They were Israelites. The disciples were Israelites. They knew their history. And they knew how Jehovah God had annihilated whole armies. And yet here was this judge saying, I'm not afraid of God. But he was afraid of what this little old lady was going to do to him. Do you remember the television comedy, The Beverly Hillbillies? Yes, you do. It ran for nine seasons. And for eight out of nine seasons, it ranked in the top 20 television series being broadcast at the time. Not just comedy, but comedy, drama, action. Of the 20 series of the top 20, they were in the top. It was number one, two seasons. Someone did a survey, and of the 100 most episodes watched of all of recorded television, The Beverly Hillbillies had 16 entries in the top 100. We we watched and we laughed. Why? Because it was funny. Many of those episodes, you remember, had the character Granny chasing after Jethro. She'd get riled up, get angry about something, and he would go running for his life throughout the mansion, and she went after him, chasing him, and we laughed because it was funny. And that's the picture that Jesus gave his disciples 
the picture of this mean, gruff old judge. They had images of, in their mind of this old man, this gruff man, this powerful man who did not care one lick about what anybody thought about him, did not care at all about what God thought about him, and yet he was afraid she was going to come and give him a black eye. And it was then that Jesus asked a question. And we have it in verse 7. Will God not bring justice to his chosen people? And maybe they heard it. Maybe they were still chuckling a little bit. <laughs> and so Jesus answered his own question. Will God not bring justice to his chosen people? God will bring justice. Yes, there were those interwoven teachings about prayer and about the second coming all woven together. Yes, that's the underlying theme of the passage. Yes, there was that parable, that story presenting God as our loving Heavenly Father who, who answers our prayers. Yes, there was that funny moment he told a joke and they all laughed. But now he had them where he wanted them. And this led up to the question that he wanted to ask all along. In verse 8, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on this earth? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on this earth? And so now the chuckling was over. And he had roped them back in. And those disciples heard Jesus Ask them the question that we need to hear him asking us today. When I come again, remember I told you the whole thing was about second coming, right? He says, he's saying to us, when I come again, is there going to be any faith left on this earth? I think it was another lesson in contrasts. And Jesus was saying, yeah, we laughed, it was funny, but do you realize how serious this is? When I come back again, what am I going to find? The believers who are strong and persistent prayers and who are remaining faithful to God, those are the kind of people who will be ready for the return of Jesus. The churches today that are made up of strong and persistent prayers and who are remaining faithful to God when other churches want to water down the gospel, those are the churches that are going to be ready when Jesus comes again. Individual believers who are strong and persistent prayers and who are faithful to God even in temptations and trials those are the people who will be ready when Jesus comes again now does that mean praying long and hard enough or doing enough good things is going to save us absolutely not but the person who has a strong and prayerful relationship with Jesus the person for whom that relationship is just as natural as breathing. That's the kind of person who will be ready for Jesus 
to come again. And since this is a lesson in contrasts, I have to say it. The person who does not have a true faith relationship with Jesus is not going to be ready. Father, we come to you in faith today. We come to you confessing those times that we know we have failed you. We come confessing those times that we have not been what you have called us to be and what you need us to be. And so, Father, forgive us and encourage us once again. Remind us that we're not like the widow in the story. We have our Redeemer. We have the riches of heaven. We have the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We have the love of the Father. And so, Father, help us once again to simply claim those things into our lives so that we might be what you call us and need us to be. Thank you. Thank you, God, for not being like the judge in the story. Thank you for loving us that much. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. We come to a time of commitment. And once again, this is your opportunity to respond in any way that God might be touching your heart during these moments. We're going to sing, and you respond as God speaks to you, and then we will prepare for communion this morning. Would you stand?